Welcome to episode 89 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. It's World Ballet Day on the 2nd of November, so we're going to talk about ballet and opera and some of the exciting and innovative productions we can see in the lead up to Christmas. Tamara Rojo, who is soon to depart as the English National Ballet's artistic director, is staging her debut as a director and choreographer with a new version of Raimondo, a ballet inspired by the spirit of Florence Nightingale. The original 19th century ballet with Alexander Glazunov's score has very rarely been performed in the UK, so it's a bold move and fitting swan song for Tamara to do this lavish new adaptation with a huge cast and a full orchestra. It's going to be touring from November. And on the 19th of October at the Royal Opera House at the Lindbury Theatre, Casso Pancho's Ballet Black returns with two new works, Say It Loud and Black Sun. Then opera-wise, on Thursday, Gods of the Game, a brand new opera about football commissioned by Sky Arts, opened at the theatre in the woods at the Grange, starring actor and comedian Lee Mack. Real football fans have been given a crash singing course, so the opera features the world's first footy fan chorus, so that's bound to be a huge hit and quite extraordinary. It only runs at the Grange for 10 days, so book fast to catch it. I have got to go to that. It sounds completely surreal. <laughs> I wonder what kind of a ballet dancer Lee Mack is, anyway. He's not, it's an opera, it's an opera. <laughs> I mean, I wonder what kind of opera singer Lee Mack is. I think he's playing the co the commentator. <laughs> Still on opera. English National Opera has an exciting season ahead. We love the ENO. We love Stuart Murphy. It's chief executive. He was one of the first people to come on our podcast. That's why we like him. It's a company prepared to experiment. It puts on fabulous English versions of great classics. And we are delighted to have the artistic director, Annalise Miskimmon, with us today. Hello, Annalise. Hello. It's so lovely to be with you. Well, it's lovely to have you. And to tell us what's brand new in the world of ballet, we're delighted to welcome Helen Shute, Chief Executive and Executive Producer of Ballet Rambert. And with her is Stephen Knight, the creator, writer and executive producer of the acclaimed and multi-award winning TV series Peaky Blinders. He's now turned his hand to adapting the TV series into a fabulous dance theatre show for Ballet Rambert. Peaky Blinders, The Redemption of Thomas Shelby. Hello, Helen and Stephen. Hello. Hello there. Well, it's great. What an honour to have all of you with us to talk about opera and dance. Let's start with Annelise and the ENO, which, of course, when we spoke to Stuart, God, when was it, two, three years ago, we were talking about staging La Boheme as a drive-in opera at the Alexandra Palace. And also, of course, we had A Handmaid's Tale with a cameo performance by the breakout star of our favourite TV series, after Peaky Blinders, <laughs> Camille Cotin from Call My Agent, who I gather is going to start in the next series of Peaky Blinders if it hadn't finished. Anyway, I'm going in all sorts of weird directions. Annalise, tell us what's coming up at the ENO. Well, it's uh, we've got everything and anything. We pride ourselves at ENO having a, a hugely extensive choice of repertoire for our audience. In fact, we talk about audiences because we want as many different types of people to come to see us. Last season, 51% uh, of our audience had never been to the opera before. So it's quite an electric atmosphere at things like um, we opened Tosca uh, last week to huge acclaim and a really exciting sellout house. So we've got some uh, glamorous Puccini. Then we've got, before Christmas, we've got The Yeoman of the Guard, one of Gilbert and Sullivan's, well, 
some people would say the best of the Gilbert and Sullivans musically and theatrically, all about a broken-hearted baritone who loses the love of his life to a gallant tenor. How often does that happen in opera? All the time. <laughs> and then we're very excited. There's going to be a um, UK premiere of Jake Hagee and a landmark American piece. It's based on It's a Wonderful Life, the amazing Frank Capra novel. So, I mean, we've got lots of stuff before Christmas and we've also got... we. <sighs> Things have changed for us all, of course, in the country since the Queen's funeral, but we have a one-off performance of Benjamin Britten's Gloriana that we programmed to celebrate the Platinum Jubilee. Of course, it's a kind of historical romance based on the life or life of Elizabeth the first, which was written by Benjamin Britten in honour of the Queen's coronation. So we're doing that and that will be a very poignant evening as well. You plan ahead for years, so the fact that you've got the Benjamin Britten opera is a a weird coincidence in some ways, isn't it? It is. We knew about the Jubilee, obviously, but you can never... It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, there, there is something about opera programming that has a kind of... Well, much like opera, has a unique fatalism to it sometimes. And, and I think even Yeoman of the Guard, it's actually set in the year of the um, Queen's coronation. So that will be as equally poignant as well. So, yeah, you can't really plan for some of these things. They just happen. And so tell us a bit more about It's a Wonderful Life, because this is complete, that's never been an opera before, has it? I mean, I'm dying to know who, for example, is you know, playing the Jimmy Stewart role. Well, that, that's a kind of impossible role to cast, isn't it, in some, <laughs> in some ways. Yes. Um, but we have an amazing American singer, Freddie Ballantyne, who is a leading black tenor, who uh, and we're telling the story in a very diverse way because ENO also a major thing for us is to reflect our society on stage. So the the lovely thing about the opera is it's very familiar to those of us who know the film, but it has its own beauty and way of doing things. So for example, if you, those of us who know the film, it's all about a trainee angel who falls to earth and is given the task of showing a man called George Bailey, who is on the brink of killing himself by throwing him off a bridge in despair at a feeling like his life has amounted to nothing. The angel shows him that actually his life has touched and helped and supported and really saved a lot of the people he knows and loves. And um, in the original, Clarence is played by a, an elderly man, Angel. And in this um, version, it's a young woman angel called Clara, who's played by Danny Denise. So there's lovely a lovely tension in the sense that if you know the piece, you enjoy the changes. And if you don't know the piece uh, from the film, it's an entirely new, fabulous experience, but it's incredibly uplifting. I can't get through listening to the CD without having a little weep. And I'm sure when we add the kind of wonders of theatricality and flying angels and snow, it's going to be a really special evening for all the family. So who came up with the idea of It's a Wonderful Life as an opera? Well, there's um, a very interesting American composer, Jake Heggie, who's worked a lot in interesting, very accessible in a good way to all types of audience repertoire. He's also famous for a version of a film, uh, the film with Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn, um, Dead Man Walking. And he was asked to write a commission for Houston Opera and San Francisco Opera. And that version, um, it's a different production 
we are making a new show of it happen before COVID, but we really wanted to do our own version for our own audiences. So it's really exciting, a whole, a whole new vision um, with a wonderful creative team for London this year. I think you'll do really well with it because the government is helping. It's crashing the pound. All these Americans will come over and be able to wow. watch It's a Wonderful I, Life for Christmas. I've got... I've got to say, I hadn't, I hadn't uh, thought of that angle, but you're completely right. So uh, it's, a, it's an even more genius bit of forward planning then. <laughs> well, let's now turn to ballet and Peaky Blinders. So, Steve, was this your, I mean, how did this come about? Because you have adapted this, haven't you? It's been a fantastic experience to translate the TV show to stage. It's worked so well. The response has been wonderful. The conversation started between myself, Stephen Benoit, who's our artistic director and who has choreographed the show really several years ago. I think it was 2018 that, that we first met. And Benoit and I reached out to Steve because Romber is, is a contemporary company. We make contemporary work, but we've been a contemporary company for nearly 100 years. So we wrestle with this idea of being a legacy company and having this extraordinary history, but also wanting to stay very much relevant and, and part of the conversation about what's happening today. And it occurred to us that... At the same time that Tommy Shelby was walking the streets of Birmingham, Rombert Company was performing in, in the 1930s in theatres and, and they may well have come across each other. And so this was our, this was our reach out to Steve to say, you know, what, what do you think about this thought? And, and the first thing that we, we all did together was um, Steve wrote Rombert into Series 5 of Peaky Blinders. And I think that was an opportunity for him and, and Bermar to get to know each other better and, and to see how they work together. You can't leave it there. How <laughs> what was your involvement in Series 5? Were you dancing down the streets of Birmingham? I wasn't personally, but, but, but so Tommy Shelby put on a performance for Oswald Mosley at his home. And what better way to kind of show off his, his newfound riches and to entertain his guests than to have the company of the moment, which was, of course, Rombert performing for his guests. Which came out of the Ballet Russe. Mary Rombert came from the Ballet Russe, yes. So Mary Rombert came to the UK in the ninth. In the late teens, early 20s, um, she was a Russian-Polish immigrant to, to the UK and Jewish um, by heritage. And so she'd, she'd left Europe and, and came to the UK to, and became the founder of British dance. So in fact, actually, we were the first dance company to exist in the That's UK. Right. You used to be in Chiswick, but I think you've moved. We were in Chiswick for many years. We're now, we're now on the South Bank and, and all over the country. We've been in Birmingham for the last two weeks at the Hippodrome and had a very, very happy time at that, at that particular home. But the idea for, for Benoit and I was to, to find a story that, that had captured imaginations and that was really part of popular culture. And, and I think that's what Steve has achieved with Peaky Blinders, is it's more than a television show, it's, it's a cultural movement. And that felt like something we wanted to be part of. Just going back to you, Steve, before we come on to asking why you've taken the word ballet out of it, which I'm interested by. But Steve, what, how, I mean, I love that. Peaky Blinders is much more than a TV show. When you set out to do it, did you have any clue when you wrote your first episode of Peaky Blinders what it was to become? Because it is ginormous. Uh, it, uh, it's been quite a journey and the fact that it's so international is is amazing and that it's popular in Buenos Aires and Rio and Russia and China and places where it's illegal to watch is quite amazing but I just think what's great about what's happened with the dance is that it's a world that translates into other areas so it's not just TV it's the characters and the people and what we were keen to do was to make it live in a different environment. It certainly lives on the stage really well. 
And so, so why have you decided to take ballet out of it and just call it a, what's what are you calling it now? A theatre show, a dance. It's not my, show. It's not me. No, I know. <laughs> I love ballet. Yeah, we, and we, we love ballet too, but Romber is not a ballet company. We, we were a ballet company when we were originally founded. And at the time, ballet was the contemporary dance form of the day. But un, unlike some of the other companies that have become the Royal Ballet or the English National Ballet, the companies that hold that art form, Romber always kept moving. And so by the 1960s, Mary Romber had decided that her interest was in the new art forms. A lot of them were coming out of America, but they were very much rooted in a different technique to, to classical ballet. Have They have different aesthetics, they have different influences. And so she shifted the company's focus to being always about the latest, most contemporary art forms. And, and, that, and that vision has stayed ever since. So actually ballet is, is an, a technique of dance and it's not one that we that we perform particularly on stage although you will see some influences alongside everything from hip-hop street dance ballroom voguing and and everything else in between and of course uh, david beckham dressed as a character from peaky blinders when he queued for the queen's lying in state so it all comes full circle he did and it's been amazing to see um the audiences last week at birmingham hippodrome who who turned out in force and so many were dressed up and that was just so wonderful it's wonderful to see men dressing up and and it had it, there was just an absolutely wonderful atmosphere more than we could have possibly expected you have to wait for a for for a red right hand by nick cave we we do give it to you but we don't we don't serve it up immediately Stephen ben warren our incredible composer roman giannatha definitely they make you wait. They give you a lot of other treats on the way. But the moment that Red Right Hand hits the auditorium, the roar is just fantastic. <laughs> well, it's a song. It is. And it's performed live. Yeah, it's performed live by our band. And it's it's just fantastic. And uh, and the people sing along in the audience. Um, I think they were more weeping and cheering rather, rather than singing. And of course, a, a ballet, a dance like this will open up dance to a, an enormous audience that will know exactly what Peaky Blinders is and would never dream of ever stepping into a show with the headline Ballet Rambo. That's certainly what we hope. And I don't, I think what's, what's interesting is that I think that rather than people discovering that they like dance, I think that it's, it's more about making dance that connects to people and they really want to see because actually dance is, is everywhere. You, the audiences tuning into Strictly Come Dancing on a Saturday night are tuning in because they love to watch people dance. It's, it's probably what, the most extraordinary way of expressing emotion and seeing people battle with their own physicality. And so what we're, what we're finding so far, and we've only we're only in week one but it, it's all very promising is that people are finding that they can openly like dance and come and see something that feels like it's for them um but boy do they dance it's really extraordinary you know i think you were mining a rich scene before i uh, <laughs> veer off and bully poor steve who can't do his tech and is desperate not to speak on this podcast but i'm just i'm just nodding very very <laughs> enthusiastically and yeah but you've become the creative boss of Birmingham, haven't you? Because you've got these amazing, ambitious plans for a film studio and so on. Tell us about those. Yeah, um, we are... Birmingham has always been on the map. It's a big, grown-up city, but I think in the middle of it, there was a media gap. It didn't really have a media identity. And when Peaky happened, it started to happen. So I'm, I've been working for the past six or seven years, putting together a film and television studio and a sort of a media environment in Digbeth. And it's going to be the best in Europe and it's going to be huge. It's going to be massive. And we are very, very buoyant about it because Birmingham has always been a place where people make things. It's not been a place where people shout about things or, or sell themselves or try to sell a story. They sort of got on with making stuff. 
And now I'm hoping that stuff we're going to make is film, television, dance, ballet, food. MasterChef is coming to Birmingham to our, to our campus. So for the first time, MasterChef is going to be outside of London. It's going to be a sort of food, music, arts, everything up in the middle of the country that we're very excited. I think it's 45 seconds from HS2 and HS2 will be 48 minutes from Houston. So that's zone five of the underground. Isn't that amazing? I mean, and when do you think you're going to open? I've started filming the first production, start shooting on November the 7th. We will be building the new studios probably in 18 months from now. I'll be making the Peaky Blinders film in March of next year in, in that location. And we're sort of, you know, we're, we're mending the roofs and, and, and stopping water getting in and, and putting temporary heaters in and just making it work. I mean, I was the film minister and the arts minister for years. And I've just come from the Tory party conference. As you can imagine, millions of Brummies came out to greet Liz Truss. But um, <laughs> it's fascinating to me that she didn't mention what you're doing. Her whole campaign is about growth. And right on her doorstep is you and this incredible, it's the terrible thing about the creative industries, although it's changed a lot, I think, but people still don't understand what an incredible driver of economic growth they are. I, I think people think it's not quite real. Yeah, exactly. Because the thing is not real, because what it, what it presents is not real. But, you know, it's one of the biggest industries and it is the fastest growing industry in, in the UK. But it sort of doesn't matter whether they know or not. We're going to do this anyway. And if you want to be part of it, fine. And if you don't, you can join in later. But um, we are doing it and it is happening. And things like the... Um, the Peaky uh, Dance Show, it's just like symptoms of a bigger thing that's happening. It's, it's a big explosion that's happening in Birmingham. And I sort of think that if Liz Truss had owned what we're doing, it would have been unfortunate. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Charlotte, that's so disloyal of you. Swiftly moving on, can I, can I turn back to Helen and Lisa now? I mean, with all this exciting innovation and, and turning, you know, television and film into dance and opera, where does that leave the the, the loved classics? Where's the nutcracker? <laughs> well, our, our lovely colleagues at uh, English National Ballet come to the Coliseum to do nutcracker every year and they'll still be doing that. So you're able oh, to see God. It's a Wonderful Life and the nutcracker, <laughs> Ed. Um, so two Double for the bill. price of one. Exactly. Um so, I mean, I think ENO has a great balance between the best of the repertoire. So there's lots of people who are coming to Tosca. But as well, I think we are moving from, and Helen, I don't know what you think about this, but we're moving from audiences in a society that were very happy to be put in boxes about what they liked and what they didn't like. And there is now a much more, especially in the younger population and, and those who are all across the internet, people just want to see good stuff, whatever it is. And that's really the sweet spot where ENO sits. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But as well, um, a lot of our audience, they have seen 20 Toscas. They will come and see our new one. 
but they also want to see something really new. And that can be something like we're doing a staged version of the Symphony of Sorrowful Songs by Goretzky, which is the top, still the top selling classical album of all time. Or we're doing a new opera about um, a policeman in Harlem and his activist son. We're finding there's a, a cross fertilization across all of our um, different repertoire. And I think that's what's really giving organizations like us real oomph. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's not just um, the different genres, but it's also how people consume their art. Um, Rombert has a channel, Rombert Plus, where we create work specifically for screen. Um, most of that content is free and 70% of our users are under 35. Now, I think with Peaky Blinders, we'll be seeing a younger um, demographic in, in theatres, but it, it won't be 70% under 35. That's a complete game changer for us in terms of the age and background of the, the people that we're talking to. And they may never come to the theatre, but that doesn't mean they don't love culture. It doesn't mean they don't love art. It doesn't mean that that work shouldn't speak to them. We have to find different ways of, of reaching them. But you, of course, have a bit of a background in TV and film, don't you? Because you ran House Productions. I did. I was lucky enough to help um, Tessa Ross and Juliet Howell start House Productions. So, so I was there at the very beginning um, when we were when we were setting up with BBC Worldwide and, and getting our first productions greenlit. And it was actually through that connection that I um, first discovered the. Steve Knight, the the incredible famous Steve Knight like dance, which was <laughs> which was which was a handy a handy thing to hear as I was as I was moving over to to ballet rumba. But it did give me a different insight into the production process because I think that something that's wonderful about the arts is we tend to work backwards from a premiere date. So we say, well, we've got to do a show on. For, for us this year, it was the twenty seventh of September, and let's make it Peaky Blinders. And I think when I first approached Steve and said, well. And we open on that day. He couldn't, he couldn't believe it because we hadn't written a word or, or had a single rehearsal. Um, but I think it's and the only is... way to get Steve behind his desk. <laughs> oh no, 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 no! Try and stop me! Try and stop me! No, but I love, I love the, uh, I love the idea that you have a date and then make it. It's just such a great way to work. You've got no choice. You've got you're selling tickets, so you've got to do it. You've got to make it. How long did it take you, Steve? Uh, well, my bit was sitting at a keyboard and just dreaming as usual. So I'm just dreaming and writing and putting it down and not knowing where it's coming from and then giving it to people who know what they're doing, which is important. We talked about Benjamin Zephaniah yet. No, he's, you know, tell us about him. He's the narrator. He is, and I think that was an absolute, um, a stroke of, of genius between Steve and Benoit was not to let go of Steve words, Steve's words completely. So when, when Benoit first asked Steve to write a script, there was a moment of confusion over Steve's face. It's like, are they going to talk? I was like, no, no, they're not going to talk. But, but Benoit really wanted a roadmap from beginning to end of what the characters were going through. And even though he was never going to try to represent exactly what they were saying to each other, he really wanted to have a, a sense of the journey. But within that, Steve wrote these beautiful, punctuating moments of narration that, that came through throughout the show which have ended up being um, the voice of, of Benjamin Zephaniah or Jeremiah, as he is in the, in the television show. He's a recording. He's a recording, yes. He echoes around, around the theatre and he, he acts as a guide through, through, through performance. And I think what was, what was really special for Benoit and I is it means we do just capture that, just those, some of Steve's actual words and, and have them on, on top of what, what's essentially otherwise dance and music for, for the duration of the show. 
Now, your artistic director, Benoit, who you're talking about, you found him, didn't you, after a worldwide search? Tell you us about You have done your research. <laughs> <laughs> I found him. Oh, we have worked. We have prepared for this podcast. <laughs> I did find him. I, I, I knew of him because he had an excellent reputation. He'd been running a company in New York called Cedar Lake Contemporary Ballet. And that, that company had a very interesting story because it was funded by one single donor um, and people had have been quite snooty about whether it was possible to 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 make a company artistically successful with with that setup and and Bemar had confounded everyone had and had he'd commissioned a lot of the choreographers that we talk about as the the most famous today I mean notably Crystal Pite who um was one of her very first commissions was was with Benoit I met him because I was working with a choreographer called Hoffa Schechter at the time and, and Benoit offered us one of our very first commissions and what I had heard from Hoffa and other artists was that not only did Bemar have great taste and was good at commissioning and and found extraordinary dancers. And I think everyone was talking about the dancers that he would put into the studio. But I also heard that, you know, I had really good feedback about the kind of ex- creative experience people had working with him. So I hunted Benoit down in a hotel in <laughs> Dubai where he was working on a show with um, the recently passed Franco Dragon. And, and he said, absolutely not. No way. Oh, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to work with a repertory company. I've done that before. Legacy company. That's really challenging. I won't have creative freedom and it was an, it was on the last day of applications that I got a text from him saying okay maybe well, I bet he's delighted now with the success of Peaky Blinders he is, he's actually right he's in the theatre at the moment in London because we, we've just moved theatres the, the bane of our lives being a touring company is it's, it's, there's a premiere every week we're never <laughs> we're never done so we've had an extraordinary week in Birmingham um, the dancers have had a couple of days off and, and they're now moving into the Wembley Park Theatre in London for, for our four week run he was he was briefly relieved and he's now battling with lights and sound and and getting and getting it all set up again ready for next week well how exciting so uh, fantastic opera and fantastic dance to look forward to um thank you all very 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 much for coming on and telling us about it thank you very much thank you thank you as we move into october the art season is well upon us with freeze in regent's park next week the other art fair at truman brewery start art at sarchi the affordable art fair in battersea and many many more so london's going be packed out with art lovers from around the world so it's a great time for big exhibitions like the Lucian Freud at the National Gallery which we talked about last week and for the fabulous Cezanne exhibition that opened this week at Tate Modern. This has already been fated as a magnificent once in a generation show with works from all over the world, many from America and over 20 which have never been seen here before. I've seen the show and it's fabulous and we'll be talking about that next week with two of its curators so don't fail to tune in then. As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com. You'll find the latest edition of the magazine there, as well as our sister podcast, House Guest, Carol Annette. We talk to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback, so we want to hear from you. If there's something you'd like to hear us profiling, please leave a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. Take care. Bye.